We're returning to our series in the book of Ephesians this morning, and our text is the New Testament lesson from Ephesians chapter 6. The following is a letter of one Roman man to his pregnant wife. I alluded to the letter but did not cite it a few weeks back. He's trying to assure his wife not to worry if he's delayed from returning home. But he casually makes this chilling aside which reflects the prevailing attitude of Roman society toward children. And really toward fatherly or patriarchal authority. The letter reads as follows. Polarian to Alice, his wife. Heartiest greetings. Know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if, when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have a child and it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. Do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you, therefore, not to worry. Charming. Charming. Uh, now, we mentioned uh, previously that husbands had in the ancient world virtually unlimited authority over their wives. The same was true in the Roman family with respect to the man as father. His children were his to dispose of as he wished. He could enslave them. He could punish them. And he could, as we see in the letter here, he could even inflict death on his children. This is the world in which Paul is giving these instructions. In fact, infanticide was widespread in the Roman Empire. Unwanted children were simply thrown out. Christians acquired a reputation for picking up these random stray babies under bridges, wherever they could find them. So the text from Ephesians 6 Paul is continuing to expound the mutual duties and obligations of what Martin Luther called the household code. And we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at husbands and wives that he has radically Christianized these codes. A lot of these codes existed in the ancient world, but this one is different. It's shaped by the gospel and in a really deep and profound way. And the injunctions today, the commandments today to children and parents, to slaves or servants and masters are no different. They're shaped by the gospel. So we're going to make two, two points. Children and parents, that's the first point. And the second point is servants and masters. Children and parents, servants and masters. So in verse 1, Ephesians 6 verse 1, he addresses children. Uh, remember, we saw that wives, uh, when he was dealing with husbands and wives, that this addressing of the one under authority first has the effect of highlighting their dignity, right? their freedom as, as a free person, and not simply as the property of the one in authority. So again, he continues that pattern. He addressed wives, then husbands. Here he addresses children, then parents. Children first. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children are to obey their parents. This is a new word, actually, in this household code. Obey. 
Wives were not told to obey. Paul used the idea of submission there. Wives are not in the position of children. Children must obey their parents. Of course, there are limits, limitations, even to a child's obedience to their parents. But again, Paul's not addressing special cases here. He's just laying down basic ground rules. He envisions a reasonably normal Christian home in the instructions. And the normal situation is that children are to obey their parents. The absence of that is a sign of great social disintegration. This is basic to, to, to order and stability in civilization. And as he's done throughout, Paul roots this simple obligation of children to parents in the gospel. He says, notice, obey your parents in the Lord, the text says. He is not saying, obey your parents if they are in the Lord. He's writing to Christian families. The whole household code, the whole letter of Ephesians assumes that. Paul means here that the child's obedience to his or her parents is something that the child does in the Lord. It's something the child does in the spirit of the gospel in obedience to Jesus Christ. And so children are viewed here with remarkable dignity. They are being addressed. This word addresses you. If you're a young person in this congregation today, God is addressing you through the Apostle Paul's writings. And you're being addressed as a full, responsible person in the church, in the covenant, having a relationship to your Father in heaven. Now, just as an aside, this is an indirect, yet very strong argument for infant baptism. All the children in the Ephesian church, and Ephesians we know for sure, for virtual certainty, was a circular letter that went throughout the western part of Asia Minor. So this letter went to thousands of Christians, perhaps, in, in Asia Minor, many of whom Paul had never seen. Nevertheless, all of them, regardless of age, are addressed here by the Apostle as members of the covenant, as responsible to the Lord for their behavior toward their parents. They're addressed as people who are in the covenant and thus are to respond in the Lord. Paul never treats the children of believing parents as unbelievers. Never. That's the end of the aside. Um, So this this gospel obedience is said at the end of verse 1 to be fitting or right. You see that in the text? And, And Paul's used this throughout. Just as immorality, he says, is not fitting for saints. Just as thanksgiving is fitting, obedience for from children fits with the gospel. So he's rooted this command in the gospel, but notice what he does next. In the next verse, he cites the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And this tells us something important, I think. It tells us that the apostle does not see the law and the gospel 
as two opposing realities. The law is given to us to guide our grateful obedience, our grace-induced obedience. We are not under the law such that if we perform it perfectly or to a certain level we are saved, but the law is still a guide for us in the gospel as to how we're to behave. Our confessions uh, put this wonderfully. The Westminster Confession says, the law and the gospel sweetly comply with one another. And you see that here. So Paul cites the fifth commandment. He says it's the first commandment with a promise. Apparently he means this is the first commandment with a blessing attached for obedience. It's the first commandment in the form of do this and you're going to receive the following blessing. And the promised blessing to obedient children here is it would be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Prosperity, not in the not in the health and wealth gospel sense, but in the sense of having an abundant provision for your needs. That's what's in view here, as well as long life. Notice that Paul cites that promise in the New Covenant to the children of the covenant. Now this is a general description of the pattern of God's blessing. It doesn't imply that all children are going to live long or that those who die young are not blessed. It's a general statement, much like the Proverbs are. You know, it, it's, of a, it's a picture of the normal pattern. But what I want you to see is Paul obviously thinks that this promise from the fifth commandment of long life in the land is still relevant in the New Testament. But notice he changes. He changes the last phrase of the command from in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That's the Old Testament form. He changes it to on the earth. And so he's he's taking the promise outside the boundaries of Israel and giving it a relevance to the whole earth. The land of Palestine was a type, a little sacrament, if you will, of the whole earth which the meek are to inherit in Christ. So children, children, if you want a good life and a long life, a life of abundant provision from God, then you need to honor and obey your parents. Nothing a child does affects their future more than that. This is the determinative thing in the future of a child's life, is their relationship to their parents. Where that is torn or shattered, then you have long-term social problems. Honor and obey your parents that it might go well with you on the earth. And so in verse 4, Paul turns his attention to the fatherly, parental use of authority. Again, at the risk of repeating this ad nauseum, to address the father in this world as to his duties... And indeed, to restrain the Father's authority is an audacious move. Now, fathers are addressed here because you know, they're the ones and not mothers who tend to provoke their children to wrath. And here they're commanded not to do so. What's forbidden here is exasperating your children. Some translations put it that way goading them into resentment, 
and anger, making irritating or unreasonable demands. And so it's a call to fathers for us to be tender with our children, to, uh, to repent of harshness or cruelty, and where we fail to seek the child's forgiveness. The apostle here is protecting the dignity, really, the, and the frailty, the delicate nature of the child. He's telling the father, look, you need to not be harsh. We need to do this. Fathers need to remember that we have a father in heaven. And he's the God and father of all, including the God of our children. And we must not cause one of his little ones to stumble. And so Paul puts this restraint on parental authority. And after that, he speaks positively of what we are to do. Bring up your children, he says, in the discipline or the training and the instruction of the Lord. Nourish them. Training has to do with appropriate correction. Remember Hebrews 12 says we have both earthly and heavenly fathers and they discipline us for our good no matter how unpleasant it might seem at the time. So there has to be correction, fatherly correction and discipline, but it has to be done in love and with self-control as an act of nurture. The word here for bring them up is the actual, actually the same word that Paul uses in chapter 5 when he tells the husband to nourish his wife, treat her as his own body. So this, that's the kind of nourishment of children that's in view here. And so this is gospel discipline. Notice the text says it's bring them up in the discipline or the training of the Lord. Right? This is not some legal regime simply imposed on children from above. This is the training and the teaching and the instruction that's saturated and permeated by the grace of the gospel. And it includes verbal instruction. The idea there of the word instruction has to do with teaching. Teaching them the faith. Teaching them our heritage. Giving them a vision of the Christian life. Nourish and instruct your children in the Lord. Refrain from exasperating them. Alright, our second point then. Slaves and masters. Paul turns to slaves in verse 5. Slavery was fully accepted, deeply ingrained reality in the Roman world. By one estimate, there were 60 million, 60 million slaves in the empire. But there was no slave rebellion in the Roman world. So it's important not to equate Roman-era slavery, right, from this time, with racially-based slavery of the New World. Most of these slaves could expect emancipation by the time they were 30. And while much of what they did was hard labor, not all of it was. Slaves provided domestic labor in this world. They often managed whole households. They did various trades, but they also filled professional and highly skilled jobs. And due to the general poverty of free laborers, many workers would sell themselves into slavery in the Roman world for the security it provided. 
This is not to say, this is not to say that ancient slavery is a good thing, but it did have some positive benefits for some people. I guess we should be careful about how we talk about slavery in a week like this where we just had that that guy in Nevada make some uh, perhaps unfortunate remarks about slavery, but we have to be careful when we talk about various forms of slavery. This form of slavery is not modern racial slavery. They're not the same thing. However, however, even this form ends up coming under the condemnation of Scripture. How much more then Racial-based slavery. And both Roman slavery and racial-based slavery are different than the even more benign form of slavery you'll find in the Old Testament. Right In the Old Testament, you had a mandatory release of the slave after seven years. He must be set free. And not only must he be set free, he must be sent out loaded down with goods and benefits from his master. So, In the ancient Near East, slavery was generally intended to turn poor people or people who had fallen on hard times into productive members in society. But back to Roman slavery. In the end, in the end, it has to be judged as an ungodly system. One of the reasons we know this is from Revelation chapter 18, where the slave market And this massive deployment of slave labor is one of the key factors given by John in the fall of Rome and its judgment. So, we have this institution, Roman slavery. And Paul addresses slaves inside the institution. And while he doesn't call for a rebellion, what he does is powerful. And it's shaped by the gospel. And it serves to undermine Roman slavery. Step back just for a minute. In Ephesians, you have a gospel set forth which declares the full unity and dignity of all people in Christ. And that gospel, then, is the death blow to any system which provides or deprives any man or woman or child of their freedom and dignity. So Paul doesn't have to call for a revolution. He doesn't have to call for a political action plan. He continues to proclaim the gospel. And so here, he addresses slaves first. Right. So here we go again. This is a revolutionary concept, that he would even address the slave at all. And not only does he address them, he addresses them as, again, fully responsible members of the Christian community. And what he has to say here is relevant to us, to anyone who has a boss or an employer or anyone they're accountable to their, you know, for their labor to. So he tells the slaves in verse 5, Obey their earthly masters. This terminology is carefully chosen. It's intended to communicate to the slave and the master that the master's authority is not unlimited. He's only the earthly master behind whom stands the master of all. But bond servants, they're to be obedient and they're to do so, Paul says, with fear and respect in sincerity of heart as to Christ. But this is not a degrading fear 
It's simply an acknowledgement that in serving the master, Paul says, you are serving Christ. It is true, is it not, that sometimes Jesus presents himself to us in a distressing disguise. He presents himself to us as an irritating boss or a demanding superior or an ungrateful customer. Serve him cheerfully. Every human face places an obligation upon you. And verse 6 continues the description of the servant's obligations. There are not to be those who work only when someone is looking. That's awful. There are a lot of employees like that. They work only to make themselves look good to the boss. Paul says you're to repent of that. As bondservants of Christ, do the will from the heart. Now here, notice what he's done. Who are they? These slaves, these servants. He says, you are bond slaves, bond servants of Jesus Christ. And so the slave's perspective is transformed here into the liberty of being a slave of Jesus Christ. This is where all of this Paul a bondservant or Paul a slave of Jesus Christ language, this is where the rubber meets the road with it. If you think this is easy for Paul to say, you should remember In other words, you might be tempted to think, well, it's easy to say to someone who's a slave, hey, remember, you're really Jesus' slave. What good does that do them? But remember, when Paul says this, he's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. This is not an abstraction for Paul, a piece of little pious advice. This is the gospel. He says, look, whether you are free or whether you are slave, the decisive reality about your identity is that you are Christ's bondservants. And if that's really the decisive reality about your station, then no station in life exceeds that, and nothing that is done to you can degrade your intrinsic dignity. So serve men out of that freedom, the freedom of being Christ's slave. Martin Luther said here famously, he said, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. Meaning you are in Jesus Christ. You're exalted in Him. You are not under the authority and the manipulation and the machinations of men. You are the most free Lord of all. You are subject to none. You are a Christian. And then Luther goes on to say, and yet a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. And in this we imitate Christ, the most free Lord of all, who became the servant and the slave of all men. This is the position of Christ's slaves. And this is why the Gospel leavens and transforms and reforms slavery from within. It says to those trapped that in Christ you are liberated. And it does this rather than calling for some political overthrow. The servants here are fundamentally, in Paul's view, servants of another now. Namely, Christ. And thus they should do God's will heartily. 
In verse 7, this is stated as rendering service wholeheartedly or with goodwill. No one likes a cranky servant or a cranky employee. But of course, a cranky boss can make for a cranky employee. But this is why Paul says, well, remember, remember who your master is. And your service to him should be gladly rendered. You are servants of the Lord and not of men. And the last injunction of these Christian household servants is in verse 8. And in verse 8, the perspective of the final judgment opens up. Notice how profoundly when Paul touches these relationships, the gospel and the coming kingdom just break in upon these things. Whatever good you do, whether slave or free, we shall receive the same from the Lord. Salvation is by grace alone, but we need to be clear about this. God does and He will reward our good works done in His name. Whatever good you do, whether slave or free, you shall receive recompense from the Lord. Notice, just in summary here, how, how decisively Christ has invaded this situation. Right? In verse 5, Paul tells servants their obedience is to be as, a, as unto Christ. In verse 6, he says they're bondservants of Christ. In verse 7, they render service to the Lord Christ and not men. And in verse 8, they receive recompense, reward from the Lord. So again, Paul's not a revolutionary. He does not call for the overthrow of Roman slavery. But he has cracked open the institution of slavery. And he's done it simply, unpretentiously. He's done it with the inner logic of the gospel. Remember, this same apostle, he could tell slaves, this is over in 1 Corinthians 7, he could say, if you have the opportunity to become free, then you should use it to become free. And then he could strongly hint to Philemon that he should receive Onesimus, his runaway slave, back as more than a, more than a slave, namely as a brother. And eventually, we know this, where Christianity spread, slavery in its degrading and dehumanizing forms was gradually, by the logic of the gospel, abolished. Right? The impetus to abolish slavery in the United States in the 19th century came from the churches. came from evangelical churches. And it came from the inner logic of the gospel that Paul's using. So verse 9, masters, or in the terms of our day, employers are addressed. We should be able to say this all together now. This is a revolutionary injunction. Right? The master has total life and death control over the slave. And yet the masters are told remarkably, notice this in the text, they're told to treat their slaves the same way. Think of that. All of the goodwill, all of the respect, all of the charity which Paul has called upon slaves to render to their masters is to be reciprocated. Masters, treat your slaves the same way. 
No ancient moralist would ever conceive of such an idea. And the masters are to give up threatening. Paul commands them to stop it. There can be no intimidation, whether overt or subtle. Bosses like to intimidate. They like to throw their weight around. They like to make veiled threats. No coercion. No abuse of slaves. Because Paul reminds the master that they too have a master in heaven. And they're accountable to him. Right? Masters and lords on earth, they receive all sorts of preferential treatment. Don't they? They receive all sorts of deference. Paul says, look, you should not expect the same at the bar of the divine judge because he says in the text, with him, there's no partiality, there's no favoritism with him. When you come before him, it's not going to matter that you were the boss and this was your employee. So this is a sober word of warning here. This word to masters. It needs to be heard by husbands, by parents, by employers. God will judge those in authority with utter impartiality and by the same standard that he applies to those under their authority. So that's the household code of the gospel. It's full of simple and rich and tough teaching for us. So I want to charge us to hear the word of God in this text and to repent of our sins, be they the sins of servants or be they the sins of masters, be they the sins of parents or the sins of children. We're called to honor the full dignity of each member of the one new man and to treat one another in light of that glorious fact. And that means we're called to remember, as Paul says here, the coming judgment. Right? The heavenly bridegroom, the heavenly father, the heavenly master of all. Thanks be to God. Amen.